Hi, everyone. Today, we're excited to talk to Dr. Rick Barnett, who is a clinical mental health and addiction specialist and the founder of the addiction rehabilitation facility, Carter Incorporated in Vermont. We'll start by covering his path from patient to practitioner and then get into the meanings of addiction, the 12-step program, the opioid epidemic, and the role psychedelics play in the healthcare field. We missed the beginning where Rick Barnett was sharing with us his academic background, but I'll briefly overview. Dr. Rick Barnett received his bachelor's degree in psychology from Columbia University, his master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology from Fairleigh Dickinson University, and his doctorate of psychology from Yeshiva University. And here he begins telling us about his focus on addiction. So without further ado, here is Rick Barnett. So I have the addiction background, as well as the clinical psychology, broad psychological uh, principles, theories, practices background. When you came into school, was majoring in psychology something you were interested in doing? Yes. I'd always been interested in pursuing psychology, mental health, psychiatry, something in the field of mind, brain, and behavior from a fairly young age, about 15. And um, I got a little sidetracked. I was slated to pursue romance languages because I speak French somewhat fluently. And uh, I was going to pursue romance languages at one point, but um, as soon as I got a little bit more clarity, uh, I went right back to my passion for mental health and, and psychology. Could you also define for us what the PsyD versus PhD process is? And did that affect the reason that you wanted to choose that path? Yes. So originally I'd said that I was in the post-bac pre-med program at Columbia. I really wanted to go the psychiatry route. And that would involve uh, two years of pre-med and then four years of medical school and a three to four or five year residency in psychiatry. At that time, it seemed like a really long road. And I just really wanted to um, start practicing, working with people clinically as soon as possible. Getting the doctoral degree in psychology, whether it's a PhD or a PsyD, is still a five, six year long process after graduate school. So the, the deciding factor for me is the difference between a PsyD, a doctor of psychology versus a doctor of philosophy and psychology degree is simply clinical versus academic or research. So there's plenty of PhD psychologists who work clinically, and there are PsyD, doctor of psychology, uh, people who work in research. However, specifically, if you really want to practice clinically, most people choose the PsyD route. And if you really aren't sure or you just want uh, uh, your options more open in terms of clinical versus academic or research, you might go the PhD, the traditional PhD route. But I, I wanted to do the PsyD program. It sounds like it. You're also an addiction specialist. Could you talk to us about that process and what made you want to do that? Yes, I I know that we had talked earlier before the show about sharing too much personal experience, and I don't want to do that, but that's definitely, I can't avoid answering the question, can't answer the question without talking about the fact that I am in recovery from addiction myself. And since I was, since I've been uh, 20 years old. So I've been in recovery from addiction for a long time. And I naturally fell into studying addiction about three or four years after I got into recovery. It wasn't something that I had uh, intended to study or pursue as a career, 
but because of my own personal experience, I went ahead and got the uh, training, the education, and started working clinically uh, even before graduate school um, in the field of addiction treatment. How did you do that? Went as as a patient. I went to a place called the Hazelden Foundation. Now it's called Hazelden Betty Ford. And uh, they had a program that I went to as a resident, uh, as a person in treatment uh, in New York City on the Lower East Side. It was a halfway house. And four years after I got into recovery, the same year I graduated from Columbia, I was I got a job working at Hazelden where I'd gone as a patient. And with your training in addiction and your personal experience, how would you how would you define addiction? There's a lot of different ways to define it. I know that the acceptable medical standard definition from the American Society of Addiction Medicine and what is taught in medical schools is basically a chronic relapsing disease uh, characterized by unhealthy relationship to substances and or behaviors. That's not the literal definition. I like to speak of it a little bit more broadly and not necessarily narrowly define it as a disease or somehow a biomedical, strictly biomedical condition. There's a lot of debate in the field about the disease model of addiction. And I like to think of disease as a metaphor. And it's really like I said a minute ago, it's really an unhealthy relationship with a substance or behavior that leads to self-destructive situations, impairment in different domains of people's lives and difficulty getting a better handle on and their lives because of a substance or a behavior. So that's that's how I define it. It's really an unhealthy relationship with a, with a substance or behavior that uh, interferes with normal life functioning. And... With that definition, that could more broadly fit into including psychedelics. And I feel like that's an interesting conversation and take for us to have about being addicted to the experience, not the drug. Can you share with the audience your thoughts on that again? Yeah, I'd love to. I had I had a really interesting experience right at the sort of forefront of my diving deeper into the world of psychedelic research and treatment and everything that's going on with the psychedelic renaissance. And that was at the the August 2019 American Psychological Association annual meeting where Michael Pollan was speaking about his book, How to Change Your Mind, which has been the talk of the town in the psychedelic world, turning a lot of people on to psychedelics and what it's all about. And then Matt Johnson was the moderator of that. Matt Johnson's a pretty well-known researcher now from Johns Hopkins University. He was moderating that. And after Michael Pollan spoke, I stood up and asked a question, which I usually don't do because I'm terribly nervous standing up in a large crowd in a microphone. But I wanted to ask be, uh, both Matt and Michael about their characterization of psychedelics as being anti-addictive and um, actually not that 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 you can't get addicted to them. And I basically know from experience and from working in the field of addiction that people do get addicted to experiences. And psychedelics are this very, very interesting uh, substance, this experience, this medication, whatever you want to call it, that really lends itself to disrupting familiar patterns of thought and behavior and experience and beliefs 
because that's what psychedelics can do subjectively. They, they, you know, disrupt ego functioning, ego dissolution, that kind of thing. And as it applies to addictive behavior, behaviors or addictive patterns or relationship to substances, I believe psychedelics can and do help people look at their relationship to alcohol or drugs or, or behaviors differently. And that's very promising for addiction treatment. However, there is a very, very small number of people who really like tripping, basically. They, they like the experience of what psychedelics do in terms of changing their way, their perceptions, their way of thinking and being in the world. And there are people who take psychedelics on a regular basis and try different psychedelic medications, psychedelic drugs to continue day in and day out to have different kind of psychedelic experiences, even you, though you can build a tolerance to them, that there's a law of diminishing returns, so to speak, when you take psychedelics on a daily basis. But that doesn't mean that people don't try and do take psychedelics on a regular basis. Again, a very, very small subset of people. They can't get physiologically addicted to it. There's a difference between physiological dependence and psychological dependence. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the, being addicted to the experience of what psychedelics do to the mind. And some very small percentage of people do fall into that trap. So I guess for me, that, that begs the question, if psychedelics are currently being investigated for their therapeutic potential in uh, treating different uh, addiction disorders, what would be said to treating a patient that has an addiction to an experience with a substance that you believe compelled, like is included in that addictive subset of an altered state of consciousness being a different type of experience that can become addicting? How does that, how would that work? Yeah, it's very difficult to unpack that. Uh, and the way you ask the question is very good uh, because what you're saying is that how does, how could psychedelics be a tool for treatment for people who are addicted to experiences when psychedelics themselves may put some people at risk for being addicted to the psychedelic experience. And like I said, there's a very, very, very small subset of people, uh, probably smaller than any other uh, experience addiction, if you want to call it, it's called process mm -hmm. addiction, but experience addiction. Uh, so I, I do believe that it is still a very valuable tool. And there's a lot of research and growing research on using psychedelics for addictive behaviors. So if you're going to use psychedelics hypothetically to treat, let's say, gambling addiction, which is a process addiction or sex addiction, it can really alter somebody's perspective, perception of themselves and their relationship to their addictive behavior. Uh, and therefore, I think it's it's a valuable tool in that way. The risk of them becoming uh, addicted to the experience of psychedelics is still there, but I think it's it's minimal. I, I'd like to make the um, the leap or the analogy to buprenorphine or methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder. It's really not a good comparison, so I, I'm reluctant to bring it up as a as a way to compare. However, people do use buprenorphine, use methadone, both to stabilize their recovery, to get off of other opioids, to stabilize their lives. And that can be a very useful tool, but they also do get physiologically dependent on buprenorphine or methadone, makes it very difficult that for them to come off. And there are people who misuse buprenorphine and methadone. Um, they use it in the context of using other drugs, 
so they might stop using fentanyl or heroin, but they'll still use stimulants or um, other maybe prescribed or unprescribed medications, different alcohol, different, different things to, to try to change their mood, change their state. So it, it the comparison kind of works. Um, it kind of doesn't just because pharmacologically they're very different. Absolutely. And I think something interesting that is also so related to this comparison between psychedelics, therapeutic potential and methadones would be, what do you, in your experience, believe is more harmful to the person? So I don't want to say dangerous, because I feel like that also needs to be defined with its own constraints, but more harmful to the user, a physiological dependence or a psychological dependence? Psychological, hands down. And do you believe that psychedelics treats that psychological dependence more so than methadone treats a psychological dependence because it, it seems hundred like percent symptoms i see 100%. So I feel like that may that might be where the comparison gets a little bit destabilized but that also only increases the magnitude of psychedelics therapeutic potential again i'm, I'm using the word potential cautiously because we don't want to say anything's an end-all be-all, which I also want to uh, introduce as our next topic. In your previous podcasts and other posts, I've I've seen that you are a bit reluctant to throw the claims out, similar to other people in the psychedelic research field, saying they don't want psychedelics to be seen as this end-all be-all, this perfect treatment to any ailment and fix a cap like uh, like nothing else on the market because it's not it's not about how the efficacy of the treatment is it's 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 a cure how do you tend towards approaching that topic especially with your experience with drug use and your conversations with other people and your patients when you're talking about the treatment pathway for addiction because there is no cure yeah i i love nuance and nuance is so so important and i can't stress enough how important it is in in the world of psychedelic research and psychedelic therapy or treatment or psychedelic experiences one thing i think where we went a little off course as a society when psychedelics uh, were really came online so to speak in the 60s is that there was so much exuberance and excitement over the research that was being done at the time and then as it sort of got into mainstream or, you know, cultural experience, uh, it seemed to go sideways somehow. We were so excited about it as being like this revolutionary experience, substance thing that could really change the world. And we're seeing some of that now. There are psychedelic researchers, uh, psychedelic um, uh, really experienced people in the field of psychedelic research and treatment who are very exuberant about the potential for psychedelics. Every time I hear the term game changer or any of those sensational headlines that we see in the, in the news or uh, magazine articles or online, it's really, it's really important to remember that while all of that is super exciting and I'm just as excited as the next person, it's psychedelics ultimately at the end of the day, they're just a tool. They're just a tool to use where somebody can or cannot capitalize on their their experience with psychedelics, whether it's uh, on a routine, regular basis, or it's a once in a lifetime experience that they have with a psychedelic. It's still just a tool. It, it can be such a wonderful catalyst for change and improving people's lives. But if if people don't really do much with the experience afterwards, 
then the message or the the growth, the potential for change really gets lost. So I think there's a delicate balancing act between getting super excited and hopeful about the rollout of psychedelics more and more, either in a medical sense or a decriminalized sense or legalization way. Um, and also we have to sort of alongside that messaging and that excitement, we have to you know point out that it's really people still got to do the do the work. I don't want to say it's work, but people still do have to integrate. That's the buzzword is the integration um, of their psychedelic experiences into their day to day life. Yeah, that hits right on my next thought, I guess, after hearing your answer to this brings me to your background as an addiction specialist and someone that's particularly in recovery. How would you define the impact of a psychedelic uh, experience because we're talking a bit more now about the subjectivity of the experience and how we have to be careful about holding space for the nuance and not trying to empirically measure everything. But at the same time, considering the treatment potential of the experience, do you think we could subjectively qualify the quality of a psychedelic experience by how well it is integrated into your day-to-day life? Well, there is research that says, for example, the more the higher people rate the mystical experience that they have under the influence of a psychedelic the more likely it is that they are reporting continued benefits over a long period of time and usually that's because i guess presumably it's because the psychedelic experience the mystical nature of it the subjective profundity profoundness of the experience does something to their lifestyle that that they then change in such a way that they continue to derive benefits from it. So um, there is, it, it can be measured in that sense. I don't know, I, I'm not a data geek and I, I believe in data, I believe in science, I believe in research. However, I don't believe it in it as a God and I don't believe that evidence-based whatever is the end all be all and the value of subjective experience, the value of personal storytelling and anecdotal things are, is, is, is there. And I think it needs to be recognized. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's personal to each person. That's the other thing about psychedelics is that as much as you do preparation and you do set and setting, meaning that you, you know, position yourself mentally and emotionally and spiritually to, to have a good experience, you set up your environment in such a way that you can optimize the experience Ultimately, no one really knows what, what's going to happen, you know, as somebody goes through that process and comes out the other end and how they are going to integrate it or not. It's so it's so subjective. I mean, the nature of psychedelics is so subjective that it almost makes that part of the experience impossible to study. And even the most ardent, hardcore researchers will will admit that. Absolutely. And I think that... Um... We've almost showcased that in the past when we jumped the gun a bit with the FDA's rapid approval of Johnson & Johnson's Esketamine Spravato um, that was um, patented because it was anti-omer esketamine. Um, and that was different than what had already been on the market for ketamine. It was you know, shown through its conclusive data and the studies that they made. My fingers are, I'm doing finger quotes right now, but the recording can't see that. Um, that it had a less of a dissociative factor reported by the patients, and that's what made it safer and compelled Johnson & Johnson to choose the S was this specific little factor. 
But now we're having these conversations and we're also seeing that we don't actually know whether or not minimizing the dissociative factor or the ego death factor of the psychedelic experience actually helps with treatment. If anything, it, it might be doing the opposite. When we're jumping the gun, like we were talking about earlier, and not holding the necessary nuanced space between the subjective experience and the empirical data, when we're kind of just so willing to capitalize on the market and get something out there, uh, patent a molecule, sell it as your own, specialize it and say, this is exactly what you need. This will be a better cure. This will be a better treatment for you than any other product on the market. Here's why. And it's kind of these skewed studies that come out. And then we had rebuttals less than a month later talking about um, our ketamine and how that actually might even be better because it has it had a higher dissociative factor. And I think that's true. There's even uh, article research that came out recently on Ibogaine and they had somehow um, reformulated Ibogaine to some molecule tab, tab, Tabernath or something like that, Tabernath, some, some molecule that took away the hallucinogenic, the psychedelic uh, experiences. And uh, they're trying to see if the that would still produce the same results. You know, the, the flip side of that is that people might listen to this and misinterpret what we're saying is that you need to, you know, engage in heroic doses of uh, psychedelics in order to achieve the maximum benefit. And that's certainly not what, what we're saying. We're talking about the idea of removing the more subjective psychedelic hallucinogenic effects, the mystical effects of psychedelics to see if they're still therapeutic value, not, um, not suggesting that, uh, the higher the dose, the more, the better, the better the experience or the more likely it is you're going to heal yourself. That's, that's important to. Absolutely. Yeah. To clarify. And within its own right, I think we can also state too, that there is, um, there, there is a need or a potential need for a non hallucinogenic, uh, substance if there is neurobiologically some type of uh, mechanism of action that does have an effect that improves someone's symptom burden from the psychiatric conditions that they're faced with, that would be interesting. There are definitely people who would want that type of treatment, but may, may not be comfortable with the side effects that currently are uh, produced with the psychedelic substances. But there's a difference between that being potentially something helpful and claiming that that is better than the current medicines that we have today. And I think it's a not often heard criticism of the um, medicalization of psychedelics. Uh, and I don't mean to be hypercritical of that, but in, in exchange for uh, going the appropriate route, the FDA approval process, all the requirements that are involved in trying to get a medication approved, FDA approval, uh, getting the public and other people to support it is that you're you're unfortunately at the um, you're you're caught up in the machinery of what we've seen for decades. And if you think of the evolution of antidepressant medications, for example, uh, we had the tricyclics, imipramine, amitriptyline, dizipramine, uh, nortriptyline, all these uh, tricyclic antidepressants, and because of their side effects. They were there was a lot of research done to come up with a better version of antidepressants, and then we came out with 
the SSRIs. Right. And, oh, MAOAs too, right? Uh, so we're always looking to improve upon the negative side effects of the previous generation. And the question is, is if you look at the research that's done on uh, antidepressants, uh, it's really not as impressive as people think it is, but the way in which these medications get approved is not really cool, in my opinion. It's, it's, it's fraught with political pressures and all kinds of um, conflicts of interest. And, uh, and, and that's the danger with psychedelics. They're, they're, they've chosen to go the same route. And so they're going to be pushed down the same funnels of approval. And that's what you were saying that happened with ketamine, for example. And that's also what happened with the antipsychotic medications, the second generation antipsychotic medications. We had, you know, the, the Haldols and the, the Thorazines and all that kind of stuff in the 50s and 60s. And then now we've come out with the Risperidones and the Quetiapines and the Aripiprazole, also known as Abilify, Seroquel, Risperdal, all these second generation antipsychotics that were supposed to improve upon the negative side effects of the former generation antipsychotics. And, you know, we're seeing major problems with these second generation antipsychotics and we see problems with the SSRIs. So here we go with the psychedelics. Now we've got like these promising results, but then we're going to want to sort of curate these these molecules in a certain way so that we can minimize the 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 side effects of them and, and what are we getting we're getting a sort of watered down probably less impressive version of them absolutely so i'm going to uh, bring up a metaphor that i sometimes use when i'm talking about uh this specific topic and it takes a minute but, and a little bit of creativity but um sometimes i like to think of our uh, serendipitous discovery of uh, antidepressants because they weren't really, that wasn't really the aim when we initially kind of even synthesized them. It wasn't even for an antidepressant medication. Um, it's almost like you didn't have a dishwasher at home. You were always washing your things by hand. You went outside one day, you saw a broken one on the street. Someone else had thrown it out. You bring it up into your house so that you can start using it. It's already broken, but at least it's better than doing the dishes yourself. So you start duct taping it every time it breaks down because you don't know how to, you can't fix it. It's, it's beyond repair, but you know, you can, you can duct tape it around and, and kick it maybe a few times on its side. And that's kind of how we're approaching the, the prior uh, mechanisms of action when we're trying to discover, because you're absolutely right. The, there isn't very much rigorous research in uh, modern uh, conventional antidepressants. We're actually seeing this discourse where the therapeutic index uh, might be a bit higher than tricyclics where you're not really seeing the adverse effects be so dangerous until serotonin syndrome, but the adverse effects of uh, mania cause people to start showing symptoms of bipolar or um, end up getting all over the place where you're kind of constantly being medicated to counteract the medications that you initially started on all to treat your social anxiety or all to treat your depression or all to treat your insomnia, they just end up compiling. And then you end up with these comorbid disorders because you're battling the adverse effects. And this is again, the duct tape on the duct tape on the duct tape. And sometimes I like to explain psychedelics as like this non-serendipitous we discovered um, medicine. It's a, it's a, you went online and you found a, a working washing machine, but now the debate is all of the people, all of the duct tape sellers uh, don't want to don't want you to get that new washing machine because like they actually they benefit off of you buying it and they don't benefit from you buying from a totally new seller that you'll never need duct tape for again. We have the policies in place with the lobbyists that are really endorsing big pharma and the way they approach mental health as a treatment and never to be a cure. You're on these medications for the rest of your life. 
Some of them even insist that at some point you no longer need therapy in conjunction with your medication, which is the opposite of what we've seen proven, which is why we also have discussions now on ketamine infusion centers versus ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and the important distinction between the two and how we should be looking at these two different the same molecules. And it's a very long metaphor, but for everyone listening, I hope that also tries to highlight something that I think myself and Dr. Barnett are extremely enthusiastic and impassioned by, which is the history of mental health and the way we've treated it as a society and our, and our outlook for how we can change it in the future. Yeah, no, the, the, the analogy works well, and you explained it very well. A couple of things come to mind as you bring up that analogy, and that is that, first of all, I think that pharmaceutical companies and the government and their partnership is, is genuinely, on some level, designed because they do want people to get better. It's not that they intentionally are setting out to get people sick. I think what competes with their desire to help people and get people better is this um, society that we live in, in which, you know, there's, there's machinery involved in generating income and revenue in such a way that people really try to find clever ways that how can you, how can you help people get better, but also make a lot of money at it. And, you know, and I think there's, there, there is some, funny business. And we've obviously seen that with the tobacco industry. And I know it's happening with the alcohol industry now with the rise in popularity of alcohol that people tend to minimize the harms and, uh, you know, emphasize the benefits of, of certain substances. So I, I, I'm not a total conspiracy theorist, uh, even though I, I know there's some, some wrongdoing there. And I also think that that's really the, the challenge with psychedelics is that if, if we're going the route of the uh, re- research uh, FDA approval process, psychedelics and the psychedelic industry is going to be met with the same forces that are going to be looking at, are there ways in which people might benefit from taking these substances on a more regular basis. And there's going to be research out there trying to show that. And what's the motivation behind that? Is that the pharmaceutical industry uh, looking at ways in which they're trying to maximize the benefits for people, but also maximize their revenue source from that process? And I just want to also say what you said very articulately about the value of psychotherapy or the, the value of the combination of these uh, pharmacological treatments with non-pharmacological treatments or non-pharmacological experiences. And we've seen that time and time again. It's irrefutable, in my opinion, the research showing that the combination of antidepressants with psychotherapy shows substantially better results than either alone. And we've seen that with the history of methadone. Methadone was originally started uh, in in the context of you know methadone and social services and you know robust uh, interventions for people in their socioeconomic situation, their mental health, and very quickly went to a medication only paradigm. And the way buprenorphine or suboxone was approved, it was approved with the idea that people would be getting suboxone as part of a comprehensive package of services, non-pharmacological, social services, mental health services. And what we've seen is that's not 
really what's happening at all. They're, they've just turned into the a newer version of a methadone clinic, except delivered out of a primary care practice. And that does save lives and people getting access to buprenorphine, suboxone, or methadone is paramount. And we've been we've been trying to do that for a while now, but in, in exchange for like giving up any real comprehensive, helpful, non-pharmacological therapies or, or services is, is a shame. And yes, that's what's happening with uh, ketamine, with the infusion clinics. And I talked to somebody the other day that in San Francisco, they basically paid $500 cash. They went into a blank white walled room, small room, Someone came in, gave them an infusion, left the room. They were there for an hour on the ketamine, and then they finished up. They were checked to see if they were okay, and they left. And there was there's no therapy. There's no there's no set and setting preparation integration. It's just get your infusion and leave. And my sense is that that is what's going to happen with psychedelics as well. That people are just going to be prescribed psychedelics uh, and do them on their own. And as much as we train as psychedelic assisted psychotherapists and people are getting some training in how to be a trip sitter, so to speak, or a guide or a therapist that can work with psychedelics. You know, it's pretty much, I don't, I don't know how many people are over time is going to, are going to follow that uh, assisted psychotherapy model. It's just going to be the, the pharma drug and not the therapy. Well, I, I think to come back from the, that conversation as that we had earlier, there is a shortcoming. There's there's a shortcoming to not offering uh, psychotherapy in tandem to the psychedelic treatment, but much more of that has to come out from the gatekeeping in terms of affordability of treatment. Like we were talking about earlier, where you don't think that the big pharma or the government is really trying to keep people sick. But neither do I. I just believe that there's something to be said about having people continuously paying money to take a pill daily that isn't really showing clinical efficacy in reality, but they were told to take this and it fits in with the insurance that they can't afford to take it, but they can't afford the therapy that would come in tandem. And that actually might be a bigger shortcoming or reality that we would have to face outside of the FDA's approval of people recreationally using psychedelics would actually be how can we make it more affordable? How can we open these gates that have been historically kept closed, only open to highest bidder almost, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough situation. I, I, I do believe that uh, psychotherapy is affordable and is potentially uh, much more efficacious, less side effects, longer term benefits. Uh, even if there's a little bit more of an upfront cost at, for some people at times and, and the investment being in pharma only is uh, and, and, and also positioned as being a cheaper alternative or less expensive alternative to psychotherapy, I think is, is super dangerous. The other thing I would add, and doesn't get said in this part of the conversation when people debate these things is that we have to realize is that as society, we demand a quick fix. It's not just the pharmaceutical industry or the physician who you know has 10 minutes in the office and prescribes a medication and, and you know makes the referral for psychotherapy, um, but the person doesn't actually access psychotherapy, whether because they couldn't find a therapist or they just didn't. They, basically, there's a ton of people who just don't feel like it. They just I don't, don't want to. 
Right. I don't need help. I don't want to talk about my problems. Just give me a pill. That should fix it. I've got friends. I've got family. I don't need to hire somebody to talk to. Um, We've stigmatized it. We've stigmatized talking to another person and opening up. Vulnerability has been stigmatized. Um, uh, It's dangerous to the male image as well as it is to... um, the danger to your own life. I mean, we see vulnerability as like this weakness, this exposure. And we also see that when we're talking about the the ego with the psychedelic experience, it's like these barriers that you put up, you've put up through your adolescent experiences, through your upbringing, the things that made you scared or made you worried about who you are, you put these barriers up to protect you. And that's almost like how we see the ego as like these layers of an onion kind of growing on the outside and the psychedelic experience almost peels them back so that you can see it. But there also is like this demanding effort with the psychotherapist to hold space and trust with the person actually having this type of experience. So I think while there is something very incredible to be said about psychotherapy in tandem to antidepressants, um, there's, it's a bit different, the conversation that we have with psychotherapy in tandem to psychedelics, because there, there's less resistance posed on opening up, because that's actually what the medicine does. And I feel like that's a really interesting conversation to be had, especially uh, with you and your background with talking to people that struggle with addiction, going through the 12-step program. I mean, getting them to show up is already difficult, and you can't really get them to show up. It's more of a process of someone being ready to do that. And I feel like the psychedelics, and again, I'm, I say I feel like because I, I am no scientist, um, brings people, allows people to feel safe in a space, opening up to ideas, thoughts, concepts, and feelings that they might not otherwise have been ready for in a uh, non-altered state of consciousness. Do you have anything to speak on that with your experience with getting patients, helping patients prepare themselves for their own recovery and the autonomy that they kind of need to uh, host themselves to. Yeah, I love the comparison. It's a great discussion that needs to be talked about more that the difference between someone taking uh, an SSRI like sertraline or fluoxetine on a regular basis and what that does pharmacologically, how it affects their mood, changes their Uh, outlook on things and might lead them in a state where they're doing pretty well. And I don't, I feel kind of um, not as bothered by my depression or anxiety as much. And so I don't really know if I need to talk to anybody because I'm feeling a little bit better and I'm taking it on a regular basis. Whereas with psychedelics, um, like you said, the medicine, the substance itself kind of breaks you open. It cracks you open and, and exposes you to uh, thoughts and feelings and behaviors that uh, ne- are being asked to be processed in a way. And what better place to do that with somebody who is, has experiences with it, or you feel comfortable talking about what that was like when you were cracked open and what that means for your life. And so it does arguably lend itself more to the kind of vulnerability and processing that people need to do to do the work, to integrate, to change their lives. And uh, as, it, as it relates to 12-step based kind of recovery, um, that's true as well. So that people could take psychedelics uh, as a, either because they were like stumbled across it and <laughs> took some and all of a sudden realized that, oh my God, I'm really addicted to alcohol. You know, so it was, you know, someone could be drunk one night and for some reason decides to eat five grams of mushrooms and realizes 
through that process that alcohol is killing them. And, and they're like, oh my God, what does this mean? And they might then go to a 12-step program to look for support or something. And there is a growing movement called Psychedelics in Recovery, where people who either have been in long-term recovery from addiction using 12 steps or have not been successful in um, getting the benefits out of attending 12-step programs uh, over a long period of time, like chronically relapsing, or people who use psychedelics and stumble into a 12-step program, um, there is a there is a growing movement called psychedelics and recovery, where people from all walks of life, from all different addictions, at all different stages of their addiction and recovery, can come in using the 12-step template to process their experience. And it's a it's a fascinating combination of both the traditional addiction treatment model using the 12 steps and the psychedelic world of integrating psychedelic experiences into a biopsychosocial spiritual uh, growth process. You are already a ketamine assisted psychotherapy trained and a CIIS training for MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Is that correct? So there are two different things. One, the ketamine assisted psychotherapy training that I've done, I've done a couple of them through two different um, well-known training institutes. One is Polaris Insight Center in San Francisco. I did uh, four out of their five modules for ketamine assisted psychotherapy, which was fantastic. And then the Prati Institute, P-R-A-T-I, has offered trainings in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, setting up practices. And so I've done training in that regard with those groups, and I've done role plays and experiential training. Um, I haven't actually held space for anybody yet for ketamine-assisted therapy. Um, And that's different than what the California Institute on Integral Studies, CIIS, and and MAPS offers. So MAPS and CIS are, are, have a partnership so that people who do the CIS psychedelic training program automatically do the MAPS, the first part of the MAPS MDMA training uh, protocol. And so I've gotten halfway through the MAPS training protocol and I'm finishing up my year long certificate in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and research through the California Institute on Integral Studies. And, and so there's there's a partnership there, but ketamine, MDMA, MAPS and CIS all have their um, corner of the market, so to speak, but also they kind of all in a hybrid way, kind of work together or in tandem. And how are you with your uh, profession and specialization in addiction, how are you hoping to integrate the higher levels of education you're receiving right now from these institutions and the ones that you've received um, in the past related to ketamine assisted psychotherapy. How are you hoping to integrate that into your uh, work with addiction and recovery? Are you, are you creating maybe your own private practice or module for uh, psychedelics in recovery? How, how do you hope this field, these people, your, your, your the prospective patients, maybe even listening to this recording could benefit from the training that you're doing with the experience that you've already had in the past with addiction. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I, I, first of all, the MDMA for the treatment of PTSD, MDMA is three, four methyl dioxymethamphetamine. And that is um, also known as ecstasy or Molly. That will be that will probably be approved and ready to be prescribed to patients, prospective patients 
not until 2023. Uh, so we're about two years out from that. And psilocybin, uh, which is the active ingredient or psilocin, the active ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms, that may be 2024, 2025 before that's FDA approved, assuming it goes that way. So I, I would be, anything I'd be setting up would be uh, waiting for those approvals to happen. And when it comes to the structure, the system, the treatment that I might set up for folks in my practice uh, would be would be an outpatient or residential setup where people with addictions could be medically stabilized, be offered psychedelic or MDMA therapies in the context, again, either outpatient or inpatient. And um, that would be utilized specifically for their addictive disorders, whether it's sex or food or gambling, alcohol, drug use. And I believe I would incorporate aspects of 12-step models of uh, well-known psychological theories or approaches to addiction, as well as whatever potential biological or, or medical uh, medication might be available at that time. But again, it's a very, very different model. It's all being developed now. Ironically, I was actually looking to see if there was a possibility. This is kind of a side note, but it's very interesting. So if anybody's listening to this and wants, wants to pursue it, I tried consulting with an attorney because we know that there's this RIFRA thing. It's called the Religious Freedom Act, or if, you know, I don't even know if you've heard of that, uh, but there are psychedelic substances like peyote and um, ayahuasca uh, that are approved under the Religious Freedom Act so that people who join the Santo Daime religion or um, other couple other ones, uh, they can use psychedelics as part of a religious ceremony or procedure. Now, believe it or not, Emma, the 12-step programs, 12-step AA has been ruled in several circuit courts as a religious entity. So if AA, it's often criticized for being super religious. So it's been ruled uh, by certain courts in the United States as being a religious organization. I consulted an attorney to see if there was a way to have a treatment program set up that is based on 12-step principles, which was deemed by the courts to be a religious entity, could incorporate psychedelics under the Religious Freedom Act. And I was told that that probably wasn't going to work. But it's a very interesting prospect that you would be able to get legal use of psychedelics in the treatment of addictions under a 12-step slash religious model or um, organization. Um, so uh, just to mention to everyone in the audience, that, that does sound like a great idea, but I'm sure a, maybe a problem that came up with the, your attorney was that um, the the reason that the religions have this freedom to use ayahuasca and ibogaine in their um, festivities is because it's uh, part of their cultural history. Uh, and there's a lot to be said. Actually, Tim Ferriss recently put out a, a great piece about the unethical production of 5-MeO-DMT and other substances that are naturally, but with our increase in use, there's a disproportionate amount of growing to be, that, that will be necessitated by the increase in demand. 
and that there uh, needed to be these types of laws and restrictions until we can understand the most ethical way to produce these substances, be it semi-synthetically or synthetically. So that also might've been a run-in that would happen to anyone listening that thinks like, oh, maybe I should consult an attorney because the court near me said that AA was a religious group and maybe I can find that space there. For the time being, there's also that same type of criticism on taking these medicines away because even though we do know that we benefit from it, we wouldn't be extracting it ethically. So that's, I guess, maybe another problem that will be coming up definitely in the future in these conversations for, I mean, 5-MEO, your DMT, you're, you're taking that out of a frog. So that's, that's a different conversation than even growing a plant. But there's definitely ethics in the way that we're producing these substances that would need to be carried out fully, especially if we want to avoid the problems of the cannabis industry and other industries that had potential to really help people, but we didn't source our resources properly. Yeah, I think, I, th- I know the Tim Ferriss post that you mentioned, and I know MAPS, for example, is active in some of the decriminalization efforts to make sure that peyote is not included in the de- decriminalization efforts across the country to save peyote from being pilfered and uh, becoming an extinct resource. However, again, nuance is extremely key here and we can't throw things in the same category. Like psychedelic mushrooms can be grown very easily and wildly in all kinds of ways. And there's no risk at all from those being extinct. And yes, Bufo alvarius, the uh, 5-MeO frog, is an endangered resource and is at risk for potentially being pilfered and destroyed. And that needs to be protected. And also 5-MeO DMT as a molecule is, you know, can be produced synthetically and doesn't need the frog to be, uh, to be resourced from. So I, I think that the danger is that, again, corporate interests, medicalization interests are very keen on not necessarily speaking out against the drug war and speaking on behalf of decriminalization because uh, it, for these reasons, they'd argue natural resources are being extinct or, you know, access to these medications can cause more harm than it's good. So they can only be accessed through a medical model or a thoroughly researched kind of way. And um, I, I think that that's, um, that's a risk. You know, Matt Johnson actually had posted something on Twitter on this recently. He said, some psychedelic fans oppose FDA medicalization despite millions who could be helped. And then he says, some psychedelic scientists don't critique the drug war for fear that it impacts their career or medicalization despite millions suffering from criminalization. So we need nuance, we need honesty, we need wisdom when it comes to embracing all paths towards access to these medicines in a healthy and appropriate way. And I don't think pitting one against the other is doing anybody a service. And I think that happens more often than not. And often for pe- from people who are very influential, like Tim Ferriss, like uh, Johns Hopkins University, like uh, some of the researchers or the decrim folks who are they're very influential voices. And I think we, we don't need to fight against each other. We need to find that nuance and wisdom and, and collaboration. 
Where do you think that nuance in cooperation is? The uh, I I just think that people like Matt Johnson, who I admire very much for his ability to capture both sides, the more leaders and influential people there are out there that don't hold fast in, in a very rigid and fixed way to their own ideology based on their career or their research or their passion for psychedelics and decriminalization and, and can sort of open their minds to finding that together, I think I think it's possible and, and people are doing it. I, I don't think enough people are doing it because of their various interests, but I think it's possible. I have a lot of faith and, and hope in the human spirit when it comes to this movement uh, moving forward in a healthy way. Um, speaking of Matt Johnson, do you think his background in uh, behavioral economics is what separates him as a researcher in the psychedelic field. We were talking just now about um, hoping that distinguishing figures in the field uh, clearly established the necessity of holding that that nuanced space and that he was one person that you in particularly admired. Um, where do you think that might come from? I mean, we don't, we don't know his, his upbringing or anything, but where does his background in economics and not in clinical psychology, where does, where could that maybe play into the space he holds between spirituality and empirical data. I should ask him, I don't have a, a ongoing relationship with him in any way, but we've had some uh, sort of texts. We've had some, some back and forth and on social media. I know that he's been exposed to patients through research, talking to other people, just being immersed in this world that you cannot get away from the unexplainable. You cannot get away from the subjective, um, difficult to extract or apply data to phenomenology. And I believe he's been deeply impacted by that in some way. I don't know how again, but the only thing I can imagine, and maybe, maybe he's talked about it in some of the podcasts that he's done. He did one with Lex Friedman recently, and um, he's been coming out more and, and sharing his wisdom and knowledge and experience with psychedelics to the broader public, which I find very valuable. I haven't heard him talk about it specifically, so this is all speculation, but I imagine as much as he's a strict behaviorist, a, behavior, a behavioral psychologist, experimental psychologist, scientist, um, all behavioral economics, all that stuff. And so I think that for somebody who's such a strong researcher and has such command of that domain, that's his domain of expertise, he allows plenty of space for these sort of uh, difficult to describe and research and, and just and understand phenomena. And he, I believe he gives credit to them in some ways, in his own way. And that's where he's found some nuance. And I, I, I find my experience to be a little bit on the flip side of that, which is more immersed in the clinical world, the day-to-day, -day, you know, boots on the ground, frontline, frontline, uh, both recovery experience, my own personal recovery experience and other people in recovery, not in a clinical setting, but just in a peer recovery setting, but also in a clinical setting and not a lot of experience in a research mm -hmm. setting with, and so I'm, I'm much more versed in clinical experiences or recovery experiences. And, um, but I do appreciate the science very much and the research very much because that informs my clinical or personal experiences, but it's, I don't, I, I tend to hold, like I said, I, I tend to hold clinical experience, phenomenology, subjectivity at a, to a higher uh, value than um, research in, in some regards. 
Now, here we have another person that we were interested in bringing, Professor Dr. Carl Hart. His background is in psychology, specializes in addiction research, specifically in stimulants. And he, the first African-American tenured professor at Columbia, he also has a, a big background in research. However, I don't know how much you know about his last book, The High, the High Price, or his new one, uh, Drug Use for Grownups. But he actually takes quite a different stance than I believe Matthew Johnson has in the past in terms of defining addiction, especially empirically, where uh, in his new book, he actually talks more about how uh, drugs aren't dangerous and admits to being on his fifth year of smoking heroin casually, recreationally at home and believes that the opioid uh, epidemic, for instance, is the data is uh, hyperbolic to an extent where it's exaggerated to scare people away from using this medication that he believes is more clinically efficacious in treating pain than it is the risks associated of becoming addicted, that was in quotes, and putting posing yourself at risk for overdose. How, how would you make, especially with your own background, um, this type of stance? Because, it, I mean, it was very high impact. It's been all over... Uh, social media. It's a big stance as someone with rigorous background in research to say drugs aren't bad. Grownups should be able to do what they want. The government should have a libertarian stance on drug use. They're they're lying to us and saying that these drugs are really that dangerous. 70% of drug users are not addicted. It's not this big gateway that we all think it is. It's You can't listen to the government. Similar to his stance on the war on drugs, which was, was what he was emphasizing more in the high price, which was a lot about drug policy, that drugs really aren't bad. Addiction isn't really the problem. It's it's the government scaring us away from using drugs that could help us because they want to keep us in this loop. And a lot of it had to do with his background with racism, with incarceration, with the historic incarceration of people of color because of the war on drugs. I just wanted to hear what you would make of his. Right. I met, I had the fortune of meeting Dr. Hart at a conference in Burlington, Vermont, a few years ago. Very nice guy had in common having graduated from Columbia. So we had a little bit in common there and um, he gave a very powerful presentation. I've heard several of his talks. I've skimmed his books. He got a copy of high price. I haven't gotten drug use for grownups yet. I have been following the social media and the articles and some of his podcasts with Joe Rogan and a friend of mine, Zach Rhodes, um, and some others where he breakfast club came out recently. And I applaud him. I appreciate his perspective. It's so fresh. It's so real. It's so raw and so needed to enhance the discussion around drug use and drug policy and the disproportionate number of people that, uh, actually don't get addicted to these substances and, you know, personal autonomy and choosing whether or not to ingest a substance. I think his message gets um, skewed or, or misrepresented when people think he's going around telling everybody they should do heroin every day. I do heroin and so everyone else should too. And you've got nothing to be afraid of. So, um, you know, the whole world should just use drugs and, you know, let's just, let's just have a party or something and just use drugs all the time. And, and he's not saying that he's not promoting the use of drugs. He's doing a really difficult job of, like you said, trying to dispel 
the myths around drug use and all the problems that come with the criminalization and racism and harms from from how we see drugs in society and how we use drugs in society. It's terrible. And he comes from a wealth of experience in the research world. And, you know, heroin, for example, as a molecule, as a drug, whether it's used for personal use or for the treatment of pain or for the treatment of addiction, is a superior drug than some of the other ones that we have out there. Methadone is a really good treatment for pain for some people, and it's good for addiction for some people. It's also a terrible drug for a lot of reasons, pharmacologically. Buprenorphine, Suboxone, same thing. You know, the fact that there are heroin-assisted uh, programs in Switzerland that he's been part of, and you can, you know, more safely administer heroin, even though it requires repeated dosing, then um, and avoid some of the problems that we have with methadone and and Suboxone. So I think he's doing a really, really tough job and good job of trying to get the word out there that we have and should have cognitive liberty. We should have personal autonomy when it comes to our own drug use. And he often encourages professionals like himself, upstanding citizens to come out of the closet and talk about their own personal drug use because people are using drugs. You know, we all, so many people use alcohol. So many people use cannabis. There's a lot of very high profile people that use cocaine and heroin and they do so in ways that don't wind them up in jail and don't destroy their lives. And um, it's not the same as promoting drug use. He's just trying to make a, like a, take a stand and say, we've got it all wrong. And I couldn't agree with him more on those subjects. I do think that his experience, as far as I can tell, of being a researcher on addiction hasn't necessarily, um, he doesn't talk about addiction in a clinical sense. He's seen addiction or he's studied addiction or, or addictive drugs, drugs that can people can run into problems with um, in a laboratory setting. And I know he's had personal experience with addiction when he was younger or with drugs when he was younger growing up in Miami. But from, from an experiential standpoint, me being somebody who's worked in the trenches of addiction and, and just heard story after story after story, and I know he has too, so I don't mean to say anything negative, but I just, I think something gets lost in his message. He doesn't mean to downplay the problems with addiction, but in order to get his message across, he really um, doesn't talk so much about the downsides of addiction because he's talking about people's ability to use drugs in a safe, responsible manner. And many people can. And that conversation doesn't lend itself very well to talking about the devastation that comes from addiction. It's hard to have simultaneously conversations about that. Well, I, I it's interesting that, that we bring this up now because uh, something that I've been thinking a lot about, especially when we were discussing the opioid epidemic and our earlier conversation about the necessity of having psychotherapy in tandem to psychedelic treatment and how your friend in San Francisco um, went in to get the treatment and it was just an infusion and they left and they didn't get help with the integration, it only really superimposes uh, or emphasizes the importance of the accessibility to education. And I feel like the the title being uh, drug use for grownups isn't even an ageism thing as, as much as it is about implying that being a grownup is someone who has access to the information that they need in order to make autonomous and reasonable decisions about their health and their well-being. Like you, it's not just about being old enough to drink. It's also about knowing what 
happens when you drink? What is the cost of your choices? And he has to drastically emphasize that even in his literature, that he's not saying that everyone, you're right, that everyone go do, like everyone should go do drugs. It's, it's not about that as much as it is accessibility to information so that you can make an informed decision about your life. Because if you have that information, maybe people would actually choose to or not to do something, but at least have, have reason grounded in it, which is why I was talking about the problem with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and the accessibility. I'm hoping that it's affordable and it's not just something for people in higher socioeconomic brackets where everyone beneath is stuck in this constant loop afterwards where they don't have access and the trickle down system for that would be maybe they have access to the infusion centers, but they don't end up having access to the really necessary and critical integration and psychotherapy benefits. Right. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said, just to pick up on the last thing first, which is that, you know, aside from having access to psychotherapy, if they, if they just go to an infusion clinic or just get a psychedelic medicine and trip on their own or something like that, what other resources are available that are free that aren't uh, a professional with a license and, you know, skilled in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, but still a community or a person or something that can provide support. And that's like psychedelics and recovery or a trusted friend or um, some other integration circles, so psychedelic society or something. There's all kinds of other resources. And when needed, um, people may should have access to a professional with a license and, and, and experience in, in, in therapy. So that's, that's true. But going back to a couple other things that you said about drug use for grownups and Dr. Hart's position on things, I would say, yes, part of his message and part of something that I really, really stand behind 100% and agree with is education is key and providing as much education, psychoeducation, drug education, medical education, um, physical, social education around drug use, appropriate, dispelling the myths and really getting the word out about combinations of drugs and, you know, what they do to the body and what you can expect and, you know, what the appropriate dosages are and all that kind of stuff is so, so valuable. And I think it has its limits. And also I think that research is largely contrived. I mean, research is so contrived that it has to be contrived in order to be successful. These contingency management situations, when someone chooses to pay their bill instead of buying methamphetamine or getting methamphetamine, you can't just, all the naturalistic observational, whatever studies are totally diminished in, in the research world. It's all about the double blind, placebo controlled, randomized blah, 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 kind of. And that's the gold standard. Whereas like anybody who comes in with like a qualitative research study about observations or naturalistic studies is usually not held to the same standard or taken as seriously. And I just don't think that those reinforcements, those contingency management studies, as powerful as they are, they just don't play out very well in the real world. Basically, for example, even to go back to what Dr. Hart says about like, we just need to educate people. When you're using heroin, don't take benzodiazepines. Don't drink alcohol because you're going to increase your chances of respiratory depression and that could kill you. So I'm giving you education. And, you know, the fact is, is that I want the benzodiazepine. I want the alcohol. I want to get fucked up. And I know that it increases my chance of death. There are plenty of people that see somebody overdose and almost die on a bad batch of heroin. And they say, I want that. That's what I want to use. I'll just use it a little bit more carefully. I'll use a slightly lower dose, but that really got that person fucked up and I want to get that fucked up. And that's just what it, it's, that's just the reality of 
what it means to live and be stuck in the cycle of addiction is like, that's your world. That's something that you love and enjoy and praise and seek after and are slave to and destroyed by and all of the above. And so like this logical, rational, educated decision around mixing drugs or testing your supply or um, choosing to pay your bill over taking the drug and stuff like that. It's just like when you're in the trenches and you're living that life, it's a very different experience. And I think doesn't mean we don't do the research. It doesn't mean we don't go to great lengths to try to educate people because we're going to save a lot of lives by doing so. And there's always going to be those people that are locked into that lifestyle. Absolutely. And it, it sounds like what we're getting to is the emphasis and the importance of treating addiction in hand with the, the mental, psychological disturbances that lead you to these self-destructive choices it's important to highlight that we're talking about in the context of psychedelic medicine is that this therapeutic pathway, unlike any other that we really have seen, especially in the case of addiction is giving someone a chance that operantly they haven't had in other spaces or other treatment remedies, because it isn't necessarily about just making a choice of, oh, now that I know that my heroin is laced with fentanyl, I'm not going to take it. I mean, people might actually want that. And if like people do want that, like that is a that is something that needs to be understood and accepted, especially by the science community, because a lot of harm reductionists will emphasize the importance of testing drugs and how that will really uh, reduce the risk of drugs in combination overdoses or accidental overdoses like they're qualified by the CDC. But the, the thing to highlight in our conversation now, as I hope our listeners do as well, is there's something critical to be said about the about the, the lack of autonomy you really feel when you're stuck in this loop. It, it really isn't about you and the choices that are healthiest for your body. It's it's the desire. It's It's what you know. And that's what addiction reinforces it's not about knowing how to be healthy and how to treat yourself well it's it's at that moment you no know, like seeing a piece of cake saying i want this cake right now so i'm going to eat it i'm not considering the logic behind it i'm not being reasonable and i think that's also what you were talking about with um confining the variables that we don't have compounding variables that could affect the statistics observational data that can kind of be compiled as yeah it's not as important as what we can empirically digest from these studies but the important thing to highlight is that like real life isn't in, empirical. Real life isn't limiting all exterior variables and really only having a dependent and in, independent. There are so many compounding factors in reality. And I feel like what we can discuss, what we can take from here, especially with what we really delved into with addiction is we're not going to try to define exactly what they do for the addicted mind as much as we can kind of save, hold space for the fact that it opens anyone up to looking into themselves that they might not have had access to those areas of their feelings and thoughts before. Yeah, hundred percent. And again, I'll go back to what we talked about earlier. And this, I think this comparison sort of does hold up again with the comparison for, for example, Suboxone, or buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. What that medication does for some people is that it offers them an opportunity to stabilize their lives enough to get on their feet, to grow, to change, to access services, to access health and well being. And that medication for some people helps them do that. 
similarly, psychedelics can crack people open, can open themselves up, their consciousness, their emotions, their beliefs, their perception of themselves and the world in such a way that it gives them an opportunity to see themselves in the world differently and potentially make very powerful changes in their life towards health and growth, well-being, stabilization, whatever. They're just they're two very different mechanisms of action, but it's a similar principle. Can is there a substance or is there an experience that somebody can have that will either open them up or stabilize them to get them to the next healthy step in their you know wellness and their evolution as a as a healthy individual. So um, again, two different mechanisms, two different pharmacological agents, two different types of addictions, similar in the sense that people need all tools to help um, recover from addiction, help access treatment and stay in recovery for the long term. And sometimes that's with a, an everyday medication that just deals with withdrawal and provides you stabilization. Sometimes it's a psychedelic that opens you up to new ways of seeing yourself in the world, new ways of thinking and being. Um, and sometimes it's neither of them. Sometimes it's, you know, neither medications or, or mindfulness. process mindfulness, just 12 step recovery, being out in nature, uh, connecting with loved ones, joining a church. I mean, people, people spontaneously recover in all kinds of ways. It doesn't necessarily require a medication or a psychedelic experience. Absolutely. And as we, come to the conclusion of this long and very enjoyable podcast. I have a few um, reflection questions to ask you. So um, is there any particular scientist or non-scientist, like academic or non-academic person that has inspired you on your path to work with addiction and psychedelics? Oh boy, that is a tough question. Um, personally, I have a lot of affinity for uh, 12-step programs in terms of their essential principles. But um, as a person who's a natural-born skeptic, I never took or still don't take uh, principles or ideas in 12-step programs as gospel at all. And, and as such, it had set me on a path early on to exploring other areas of research or thinking, philosophy, psychologies that uh, may or may not coincide with what's contained in, in 12-step uh, principles. And, and so um, what I found and what I continue to find on that journey is that uh, everything is connected and everything uh, seems to come back to the same principles. So it's hard to point to one researcher or one piece of literature or experience that would um, I would see as the source of, of my inspiration for doing the work that I do and living the life that I live, but I, I'm constantly in awe of discovering uh, how everything is connected. And, you know, it's psychedelics uh, since in the last year and a half or so, two years that I've done a deeper dive into psychedelics, it, it's just going back through all of these familiar characters that I've studied, uh, whether it's William James or Carl Jung or, um, you know, some uh, the more recent research and work coming out with acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, I've trained in uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing EMDR for trauma and uh, some of the work of DBT dialectical behavioral therapy uh, by Marsha Linehan and uh, Eastern philosophies, Buddhist philosophies, some Christian principles. 
I mean, you just name it, even the strict behaviorists, like uh, psychedelics uh, have aspects that relate to all of that. It all relates to 12-step recovery. It all relates to addiction. It all relates to mental health and recovery and just what it means to be be human, Carl Rogers and that sort of hum, humanistic approach. So there, there's so much, there's so much overlap with psychedelics and all the other stuff that I've studied as a as a human being walking this path and as a, as a clinician, as a psychologist, as a person in recovery, it's really a joy to be part of the whole process. It's always really uh, refreshing to hear people talk about the, the privilege of learning through the human experience. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people within the psychedelic space hold true to themselves, um, which also kind of separates the psychedelic space in a way a bit from other fields of science, I think too, is this, acceptance that there is connection between and within everything we do are and will be so that was beautiful thank you so much for listing those people and therapies to look out for i would also ask in the morning when you drink your when you drink your tea or coffee are there any resources that you're reading to stay up to date with uh, research and or developments within the field Um, well, I can say in the morning, I tend to meditate most often. I don't do it every day. I meditate. I, I've recently stum- come across the Radiant Sutras by Lauren Roche, um, which is a phenomenal book of meditations and uh, been interested in Stoic philosophy recently. Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday and uh, those guys are, are, you know, and a lot of other people are talking about Stoicism. So Stoic philosophy is something that I read, but in terms of keeping up with the research, I mean, I'm just steeped in this stuff. Michael Bogenschutz's work on addictive disorders and psychedelics is something anybody interested in uh, the application of psychedelics to addictive disorders should should know Michael Bogenschutz's work. There's so much more research coming out uh, using psychedelics for various conditions, eating disorders, dementia, um, Again, other types of addictions, cocaine use, to stimulant use disorder. Um, actually, a study came out several years ago on that. And Matt Johnson on nicotine use disorder. So I do try to keep up either through what I see on my social media feed and my studies with, uh, with CIIS. And I will continue to learn because there's just this is just we're at the front edge of this. It's just a, a ballooning um, area, both in terms of financial investment and corporatization of psychedelics and the research behind psychedelics and the proliferation of psychedelic societies and uh, psychedelic uh, integration circles. So I think the more educated we can become collectively as a society, we're going to avoid the trappings that happened in the 1960s. I don't like as much the term psychedelic renaissance because it suggests a sense of exuberance uh, that could potentially mislead some people. Uh, you know, Renaissance has this exuberant, enthusiastic kind of thing, which is appropriate because I'm enthusiastic about it. But I would like to think that we've evolved a little bit past the exuberance and in, in, like again into a more nuanced and mature approach to integrating psychedelics into society. That's so interesting that you think that the context of using the word Renaissance has more. Uh, meaning than just the rebirth that you actually think it ha- causes a bit more harm in kind of being that end all be all panacea. Lastly, what advice would you give to the version of yourself that existed five years ago? And what advice do you 
hope to give? Or what what things are you holding on to for the version of yourself that'll exist five years from now? Uh, the the knee jerk quick reaction response I would say to the me five years ago I would say keep doing you're doing keep going you're doing a great job and oh. <laughs> and five years from now say the same thing to my future self keep going you're doing a great job just a lot of self coaching and encouragement and um, I believe I've been guided on this path uh, for a reason and I feel led and guided and privileged in so many ways and my desire to give back and be a resource for good on the planet is stronger every day. So I, I hope to continue to do that. Well, I hope the same for you. And do you want to send out your handles for social media as well? If anyone here at the end of the video is still listening and wants to catch on. Sure. Um, my Twitter and Instagram handle are the same. That's at Dr. Rick Barnett. That's D-R-R-I-C-K-B-A-R-N-E-T-T. And I'm also on LinkedIn. And those are my main social media outlets. And I have a, I have a website for my nonprofit, Carter. Um, that's at addictionvt.com. Addictionv as in Victor, T as in Tom.com which is also cartervermont.org, C-A-R-T-E-R-V-E-R-M-O-N-T, cartervermont.org. And uh, yeah, no, those are, that's, I'm very active on social media, addictively, no, no, <laughs> pun, in, no, no pun intended. I'm very, very much on social media. So I, I love engaging with people and I've met great people like Emma and other people uh, through social media. I don't, I don't throw social media under the bus, although it has caused some, problems in my life being uh, being on it too much. Uh, so we all need to self-monitor to some extent. But yeah, definitely reach out to me on social media. I love it. That's great. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rick Barnett. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. Thanks, Emma. We'll stay in touch. Thank you all for listening. If you liked our podcast and would like to connect with like-minded spirits, jump over to the Psychedelic Grad community and become a member. And if you're looking for psychedelic studies, field announcements, and job openings, you can sign up for the Psychedelic Grad newsletter with the link in the description. I hope to see you back here for our next session. Take care.